Bible, go ahead and open there. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring one to you. Luke 21 uh, is an interesting passage uh, of Scripture because it's almost, uh, it's just really hard to understand this section uh, without um, the other sections of Scripture that talk about the same thing. So you'll find Luke chapter 21 is covered, the same information is covered in Matthew chapter 24, it's covered in Mark chapter 13, uh, and in each of these areas, they're covered at kind of different levels of coverage. There's different uh, amounts of information given, and so you kind of have to mesh those things together. So every week I tell you, it's hard to preach an entire chapter in a week, well, I get a try to pull in from these other chapters now on top of all of that and get you guys out in time for Mother's Day lunch. So we've got a lot to cover today, so we'll just skip that first slide. Uh, what I do want to tell you, though, is that uh, as we approach this, we have this one little tidbit at the very beginning of the passage. It's actually a really cool section of Scripture uh, that we're uh, not going to spend a lot of time on, but we do want to go through it. Uh, but in my opinion, when they put the chapter there, they should have put it at verse 5, because this last four verses here should have been the end of the previous chapter, in my opinion, uh, because then the rest of the chapter would be on one subject. Anyway, uh, here in chapter 21, it says this, he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. If you can envision this scene, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. There's people all around, but what they had in the temple is something similar to what we have here. Uh, they had offering boxes, so to speak. They had places where people could put offerings, uh, gifts for the temple or tithes or things like that, uh, that they could bring in uh, to provide for the, the temple work there. And um, Jesus is watching as the various people go and they give their gifts. But he singles out one particular lady to teach something to. And it's this woman who happens to be a widow, which means she's probably pretty alone in this world. And on top of that, Jesus tells us that she's in poverty. And so she is a, a poor widow woman. And she's going to put in two uh, mites, uh, which is a very small amount of money. It's actually a very tiny coin, if you've ever seen one. It's just this little piece of copper. Uh, but uh, a mite is equal to one 128th of a day's wage. So think about how small that is. Think about what you make in one day. Divide that number by 128. She put two coins in representing that amount. So she actually was actually putting in one 64th of a day's wage. That's how much she was putting in. Now, that would be a contrast to what was happening with everybody else. They, they talk about this idea of ringing the trumpets as people were giving, as they were giving. And there's different ways that that's interpreted. One is that the uh, offerings were kind of these big trumpet-looking things. And as you put your money in, it kind of rang throughout the temple. And everybody could hear the coins bouncing in there. And, of course, the more coins you put in, the more attention you got. And her two little mites wouldn't have made very much noise, right? Uh, another is actually some people think of it as, as almost like people are parading in as they're, as they're giving money at the temple on that particular day. And so I envision this like something that's happening at New Orleans during Mardi Gras, like, you know, just like people dancing and singing, coming on in and dropping in all their money. And then here comes this lady and she's like, I've got a little bit too, it's okay. And it's just like such a contrast to what everybody else would be doing. Uh, there was no purpose in this uh, for her to, to draw attention to herself she just wanted to give. But what was powerful about her gift 
She gave not out of her surplus, she gave out of her poverty, all that she had to live on. And Jesus wants to to kind of point this out. I think most of us give to God out of our excess, whether it's our time, our energy, or our money. Most people say, well, I've got a little extra money this month, I think I'll give something. Or I've got a little extra time today, I think I'll read the Bible. Or I'm, I'm feeling kind of spry today, I think I'll volunteer for children's ministry, but just for one week when I have the energy. Not those other weeks when I don't have the energy for all those kids and the noise and all that. I think there's kind of this thing, Jesus just wants to highlight just this, this powerful moment where this woman gave and it hurt a little bit. It was a real gift because it came at a cost to her. And in her case, it came at a large cost. Out of her poverty, she put in all that she had to live on. Think of it this way. Taking all that you have and giving it up for God in one moment. That's a pretty rare thing. And I don't think it's intended to be the everyday thing. It wouldn't work if it was the everyday thing, right? But he was just pointing out just this amazing moment of giving. He just wanted them all to see it so they could see an example. And it's not the example that everybody else would have looked at. Everybody else would have done the math. This person gave thousands upon thousands of mites. (laughs) She only gave two mites. Hers isn't that much. Jesus says, no, hers is more valuable because it cost her something to give it. The one who has all kinds of extra, it doesn't cost them anything to give. There's no real gift. And of course, for Jesus, he recognizes the sacrificial gift because that's who he was. He sacrificed everything, his life, to give us eternal life. Just a little highlight there. Uh, It is unfortunate where it's placed there because the rest of the chapter is going to move on to end times. But it does at least put us in mind that at some point and in some way, whether it's our time, our energy, or our money, what we give to God should be at some level a sacrifice to give. Again, I'm not saying you have to give everything all the time because if you give everything all the time, you have nothing to live on ever for the rest of your life, right? I'm not saying that and that's not what Jesus is saying. But he's just saying he recognizes how much more her gift was because she was willing to give all that she had in that moment. He recognized the difference. It wasn't about the amount. It was about what it cost her. Well, this next larger section of the rest of the chapter is going to be uh, dealing with end time stuff. Just a quick show of hands. Uh, How many of you find end time stuff confusing? Just me? Yeah, quite a few people find it confusing. On the other hand, there are some people that think this is the best stuff in the Bible. Who thinks it's like the best thing in the Bible is the end time stuff? Yeah, now see, here's the thing. I agree that it's the best stuff in the Bible because I can't wait to get to the end, right? But man, it's confusing stuff. Uh, This is something that the church as a whole throughout history has kind of gone back and forth and argued and bickered and tried to figure out exactly what everything that Jesus meant when he said the things he said. And we have to understand that the things we know about the end times exceed what the disciples knew about the end times. God has progressively revealed more and more and more. So if you think about when Adam and Eve first came into the world, they did not comprehend that there was an end of time, right? Because they just found out time. Like they're just entering into God's plan. As you go forward, the prophets begin to reveal a little bit more about the end times. And then you get to the disciples of Jesus Christ. And they're able to ask him very specific questions. And he reveals a little bit more to them. 
But then after the disciples, you start to see some of them inspired and more and more by God to write prophecies. And so you have some of the prophetic words in the New Testament, in particular the book of Revelation, that none of the disciples that Jesus is talking to has on that particular day. God has just continued to reveal more and more and more about his end times plan. Well, in this particular scenario, the discussion of end times comes about uh, as people are looking at the temple. Uh, Let's see it here in verse 5. It says, while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will be not left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. They questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? There's actually a change of scenery here. Uh, it tells us in Matthew and Mark that they're leaving the temple. It's probably the end of the day. They're heading over to the Mount of Olivet where Jesus would spend his nights. And so this is kind of the setup. As they're leaving the temple, there are those who are looking back at the temple and going, wow, would you look at that thing? And I actually envision this temple like glowing in the sun as it's setting. That's how I envision all of this, that it begins to glow. Because what they had done, this was Herod's temple. Uh, Herod the Great was actually uh, great for a number of reasons, but one of them, I think he was the greatest engineer and architect, certainly of his time, maybe of all time. Like just amazing the things that you get to see that he's done. Uh, We're going to be going to Israel in November, December time frame. And uh, the last time we were in Israel, that was the thing that really caught my attention. Like I'm expecting like all this like Bethlehem stuff and all that. But what I was amazed over and over again was the things that Herod had built. He built a mansion into a mountain. Like he just like cut the top off, dug in it and built his, his summer home. <laughs> like into a mountain, Herodian. That's just amazing stuff. Well, he built the temple that they were worshiping and actually he was building it at that time. But one of the things they did with this temple is after they put up the stones, they then coated it in gold. So could you imagine this golden temple as the sun is going down, reflecting off of that, just glowing in the background. Everybody's just looking at that thing and saying, that thing, that temple, man, that thing's amazing. And Jesus goes, eh, it won't be here very long. That thing's coming down. Well, you would suspect that the disciples would have some questions about that. And so that's exactly what happens. They're going to ask Jesus some questions. Uh, It looks like two questions here in Luke. It's really three questions. But because of their understanding, their limited understanding of the end times, they think it's just one event. But they're connecting the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem with the end times events. And so they've kind of put it all together, and it's really kind of three questions. Number one, when therefore will these things happen? That's the one that's obvious here. And then the second question here is actually two questions in Matthew. What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And these things are described for us specifically in Matthew. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it's the end times. So they take these three events, the destruction of the temple, the second coming, and the end times, and they mash them all together into one event. Jesus, in his answer, he's going to separate them out into different events, the destruction of the temple, and then sometime later, the second coming, 
and the end of things, which actually ushers in the ultimate millennial kingdom of God. And where this gets confusing is sometimes people look at this and they say, like the disciples, everything that Jesus said about the end times here, even the book of Revelation, they'll say all of this happened at a historical event in 70 AD where the Romans destroyed the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem, really. But when the Romans destroyed that temple, they would say everything that you see about the end times, that all happened in 70 AD. I'm telling you, it's, it's just not possible. <laughs> the things that Jesus described, we would have heard of them. The things that the book of Revelation talks about, we would have heard of them. They say, well, that's just apocalyptic language. They're just exaggerating it so you, so you feel like it's going to be this horrible thing. It's just trying to build it up. I'm like, no, it's, it's pretty specific, the things that it says in there. Uh, there's no reason to think it would mean anything other than what it says is. The other thing that people have done that I think is also a mistake is they try to take every end times discussion and turn it into a discussion of just one thing, that's the rapture of the church. At this point, the disciples have no concept of the rapture. So any indication of the rapture in this passage is just kind of incidental, honestly. It's not the point. So when we look at the end times, we, we separate it out like this. There was the ascension of Jesus Christ. At that time, we enter into what's called the church age, or as it's called in this passage, uh, it's the time of the Gentiles. And that will go on until, as we believe, the rapture of the church, followed by seven years of tribulation, then the second coming of Jesus Christ, there's this great war at the end that ushers in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then after that, a new heaven and a new earth. That's how we see the end times events in this church, okay? I understand that there are all different kinds of views about that all throughout church history. The key for me is that every one of those views needs to be waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. We can argue about what time the train comes in. The fact is, he's coming back. And all of those different views, that's what they're, they're just putting the different events in different orders. They're trying to figure all that out. So, Jesus, though, at this point, he's not even telling them about the rapture, I don't think. He's talking specifically about that second coming that happens at the end of the time of tribulation. Uh, the other thing uh, that I think we have to understand here is when Jesus tells this, he actually doesn't know the end. Remember, Jesus earlier told his disciples, of that day and hour, no one knows the time, not even the Son, only the Father. So at the time that he was telling this, he couldn't give them a date. He couldn't say, it's going to be on, you know, September 29th, 2022. But boy, that'd be a great day for it, wouldn't it? <laughs> he couldn't tell them that. All he can really do is tell them about the events surrounding that time so that they could see it. And so that's kind of what he's going to do. So he's going to have to answer both about the destruction, but then also about the end times. Now, to make it just a little bit more confusing here, the first part of his answer is not the answer to the question. It's the opposite of the answer. He says, well, let me tell you what the signs aren't, first of all. So that's what he's going to do here in this first section in verse 8. He said, see to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Don't go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, don't be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued saying to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will, be great or there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, 
They will lay uh, lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to, uh, not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." Again, the first thing Jesus wants to tell them, what isn't the signs of the ends? This is a confusing thing for some people because some people look at these things. uh, They're also called birth pangs in Matthew chapter 24. And they say that these are the things they're looking for for the signs of the ends. Well, well, what are those things that can be confusing? Well, the first here is in verse 8. One of the things that confuses people about the second coming of Jesus Christ is there's going to be all kinds of people claiming to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says, don't let them mislead you. There's going to be many people in my name who say, I am he, the time is near. Do not go after those people. That's not a sign of the end times when you have people claiming to be the returned Jesus Christ. In fact, that's been happening since the time of Jesus. All throughout history, these different people have raised up and said, I am the second coming of Jesus Christ. How convenient for them. There's a guy in Mexico right now that walks around. He's got a baseball cap on. Looks like it was printed at a truck stop. It just says Jesus on it. And he's got followers that believe he's the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Korea, there's this guy who says he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And then he died, which was awkward. So now his wife is the mother God who's in charge of the church. It just happens over and over and over again. These people who rise up and say that they are the second coming of Jesus Christ. Or as there is a group in town that says, we have another gospel of Jesus Christ that talks about him going across and coming to the Americas to bring the gospel. You see, there's all these other Christs that have raised up throughout history. But if they have to send a prophet to you to tell you about it, if you have to read about it on a newspaper, or if you have to go to their event or attend six Bible studies to understand it, I just want you to know that's not the second coming of Jesus Christ. The point that's going to be made in this passage, in this chapter, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's going to be obvious when he returns. It's not going to be something that you hear about on the news and like, I need to go check that out if I get time. Everybody will know about it. Everybody will. There will be no question that that's what it was. It was the second coming of Jesus Christ. So don't follow after these false messiahs. Uh, The other thing that is not a sign of the end times, you will hear of wars and disturbances. Don't be terrified. These things will take first, but it's it's not the end, he says. Uh, This is something that happens, though. Every time a new war sparks, people start asking the question, oh my goodness, is this the end? Is this Armageddon? And man, it's, it's even crazier if you start putting that stuff around Russia or anywhere with Europe involved. People start counting. It's got to be 10 nations. It's got to be 10 nations. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's like, wow. <laughs> people get excited about these things. But look, World War I wasn't a sign of the end. World War II wasn't a sign of the end. Korea, Vietnam, the Iraq War, the war in Ukraine right now, those are not signs of the end. 
Don't let those things mislead you. It's not going to be a war that is a sign of the end times. Those things will mislead you. Again, the end will be obvious. It continues on in verse 10. It talks about nations, risings against nations, kingdom against kingdom. Certainly that's what our world looks like today. Those things aren't signs of the end. Uh, Here's another one. Great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines, terrors, things going on in the sky. This in and of itself is not a sign of the end. And, And if you follow any of the rapture websites, which sometimes I get excited about these things just like everybody else, and I'm like, gotta go to the rapture countdown website and see how much closer we are and all this stuff. Here's what they do. They track these things and they're like, hey, 42 more earthquakes last year than the year before. We must be getting closer. Or maybe we're just getting better at tracking earthquakes, right? <laughs> like they show me a chart that started at the day of Jesus' birth up until now and there's like more earthquakes and I'm like, you didn't even have a computer back then to track this stuff. We just have more information now and it just kind of builds up. But people see those things and like earthquakes. It reminds me, there was this movie years ago called Sneakers with uh, uh, Robert Redford and Dan Aykroyd and a bunch of guys. And he's sitting in this van, conspiracy theory guy. He's reading from the, the news. Oh, cow mutilations are up. Something's happening. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> but we as Christians, we so want Jesus to come back. We're looking for any sign that it's right now. My son had a dream when he was a kid, picked a date in his dream. I still keep that, that date in mind. I'm like, it could be. It could be the dad that day that my kid all those years ago had a dream about. And to make it freakier, he has this dream about this day that this is the rapture. We go to a home fellowship and another parent there said, my son had this dream about the rapture happening on this day. It was the same day. <gasps> Set your calendars, people. You know, we're, we're so worked up about these things, but these are the things that Jesus says, this isn't the end. This isn't the end. Don't let those things mislead you. Those things can become a distraction. What he wants us to know before all of those things take place. Oh, here, I forgot about plagues and famines. Oh, my goodness. COVID must have been a sign of the end, Right? And hey, going into it, that stuff was scary. Maybe it was, right? Like we were concerned about these things. Understand in the book of Revelation, it does talk about plagues and famines wiping out one third of the population of planet Earth. That is billions of people, right? So when we walked into COVID, you're like, could this be one of those things? We're not looking for famines to be a sign of the end. That's not what we're looking for. But I actually did the math because I saw a news report this week where it said they had estimated how many millions had died because of COVID up to this point. And uh, I don't remember the exact number. What I do remember is I did the math and it was not a third of planet Earth. It was 0.01%. You see, this is nothing like the end is going to be. It's nothing like that. What's described is something that is beyond anything we've ever seen before. All of these things, they have to happen. It's just life. These are things that just happens. But here's what's great about this. He says, I want you to understand this in verse 12. 
before all of these things, they're going to lay hands on you and persecute you and deliver you to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors. For my name's sake, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds beforehand not to prepare to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which your opponents will not be able to resist. Here's the idea, though. There will be persecutions that come up until the end. Now, his disciples lived this out, right? Most of them were martyred. Some of them, they tried to martyr several times. Poor John. They tried to kill that guy over and over and over again. They finally just put him on an island. We're like, we boiled the guy in oil. We don't know what else to do, man. These persecutions were going to come. But what does Jesus say about these persecutions? They don't take up arms and fight back. Let them take you before kings. Let them take you before the synagogues. Because then you have an opportunity to share the truth with them. The gospel. He's basically saying that he's going to use persecution to advance the gospel message into places of darkness that don't want to hear it. And this is something that we see in the world today, not in America so much, but in Islamic countries, in China, in a lot of countries that have very hard communist regimes, who one of their first tenets is to remove religion, then the Christians have to kind of go underground, right? But when they get caught, they have opportunity to share the truth. And so these people who didn't want religion to exist bring these people in courts and say, do you believe other stuff? Why, yes, I do. Let me tell you what I believe. Christ died for our sins and was buried, raised on the third day and appeared. His death paid the price for my sins so that I can have eternal life just like him. He resurrected from the dead as evidence that I'm going to resurrect from the dead someday. Holy Spirit takes that and can begin to work in the hearts of people. And you see these revivals. The church is growing faster in places where it's illegal than in places where you can speak about it freely. God's going to use those persecutions in the meantime. He's preparing his disciples for his time of being gone. It is sad to see that the betrayal will come in many cases from your family, your parents, your brothers, your relatives, your friends in verse 16. He even says that some of us will be put to death that will be hated because of the name of Jesus Christ, which is confusing, right? Because he just said in verse 16, some of you will be put to death. And then in verse 18, yet not a hair of your head will perish, which clearly in my case, (laughs) that's not saying much, right? But, But there is this differentiation that he's making here between death and perishing. It sounds like the same thing to us in general, uh, but there is a difference there. There's two separate Greek words. One is literally death. That's the one in verse 16. There are people that will die, but what he's saying is even if you die, you don't perish. You're not utterly destroyed. Your soul lives on. In verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. I'm not sure why they use the word lives there. Uh, In my New American Standard version, uh, um, it it actually has a a number there to tell me, you got to check the column to see what that word really means, which I wish they would just put what that word really means, right? What it really means is souls. And so then I checked my concordance and looked up the Greek word, and the Greek word literally means your soul. And so what it's really saying is, although you might die, you won't perish. Your soul will continue on. This is the thing. Like, what's the worst they can do to me? 
Kill me? No, the worst they could do to me is keep me alive. Killing me is this moment of pain followed by eternal bliss, resurrected to eternal life. If they kill you for the testimony of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean you lose your salvation in some way. You don't lose eternity. No, you're resurrected. You're brought back to life. You live eternally with God. Nobody wants that. We're not asking for that. It's not an invitation. (laughs) But he needs his disciples to know these things because most of them will be put to death for their testimony. And he needs them to understand that their death is not the end for them, that they will live on. Well, verse 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and then recognize that her desolation is near, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, those who are in the midst of the city must leave, those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now he is going to answer their first question. He said the stones of the temple will be cast out, not one left on top of another. They said, when's that going to happen? Jesus is telling them what they need to be concerned about so that they know when it's going to happen. It's kind of common sense, though. The answer is, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, it's a good time to get out of town. This will actually be fulfilled within 40 years of Jesus telling this. In 70 AD, he's he's speaking in 33, 34 AD. 70 AD, this will actually happen. He's giving them like 30 years notice, right? Right? He's letting them know that this is going to happen. And so what ultimately is going to happen in Jerusalem is the Jews are going to rebel against the Roman occupiers. And they're going to take control of the city and they're going to try to set up their own government. And there were different times where the Romans came in and tried to put this rebellion down, but it wasn't very successful. And so finally, uh, this guy by the name of Titus is charged to do that. He'll eventually become the Caesar. But at this point, he's just a military man. He's going to come in and he's going to besiege Jerusalem, which means he's going to completely surround it with armies. He's going to cut off all food into the city in hopes of starving them out. When that doesn't work, he's going to try to overcome the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And it really is kind of this crazy fight. If you can imagine the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, they bring up their siege equipment, which is these like ramps and things that would either tear down the walls or give them the ability to go over the walls. And what the Jews would do is they would tunnel underground underneath their siege equipment, and that stuff would just drop into the ground. War was different back then because somebody has to dig that hole just knowing every shovel load, that thing could fall at any second on top of me. But that's what they had to do in order to protect their city. So Titus and the army surrounded. It's all made even more complicated because we're told in history that this happened on April 15th in that particular year, which is three days before Passover, which means Jews from all over the world are either in the city or on their way to the city when all of this is happening. Eventually, they're able to break through the walls. And it's described by Josephus as almost a bloodthirst by the Roman soldiers. They just go into the city and they just start slaying people. Now, Titus had told them, save that temple of God. Because I want to turn that into a temple of our gods. But when they get in there, and there's some dispute about what happens, some people say the Jews started the fire, some people the Romans soldiers started the fire, but a fire breaks out in the temple of God, 
And that flame causes all that gold to melt within the cracks and between the rocks. Well, that gold's pretty valuable. So in order to get the gold out of the destroyed-by-fire temple, the Roman army takes each stone of the temple apart to get to the gold, and they just kind of cast the temple off to the side. And this is kind of cool. If you go to Israel today, you know what you'll see? A flat spot with a bunch of giant stones all over the place around it. You can still see it today. You see, the thing that Jesus said was going to happen to Jerusalem happened, and it happened as an act of vengeance. You may recall this in chapter 19, as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, he wept over the city. And he told them at that point the same thing, that the city would be surrounded and that the stones would be torn down because they had missed their day of visitation. It's punishment because they rejected Jesus Christ. And Jesus knew this was going to happen. He's, he's warning the people. Now look, the believers, the Christians, they're going to see the Roman army coming and they're going to say, didn't Jesus say something about this? Might be a good time for a vacation. They leave town. <laughs> but the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus, they suffered. Josephus estimates that there were 1.1 million Jews who died. Other historians would disagree with that number because the Romans have a tendency to tell stories like fishing stories. And so each time they tell the story, the number grows. And so who knows how many, but either way, just a devastation for the city of Jerusalem. But that's not the end. Because after that, we have this thing, it says, that the nation of Israel, Jerusalem, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We're living in the time of the Gentiles, when God has moved his attention from the nation of Israel to the rest of the world to bring the gospel. And we're thankful for being in the times of the Gentiles because that's how we got saved. I'm not Jewish myself. I came to Christ... <laughs> Because I came to Christ because the gospel spread to the rest of the world. We're living in the time of the Gentiles. And until that time is fulfilled, Paul talks about it also in Romans chapter 11, the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles. Until that time is fulfilled, the end isn't going to come. And so the city of Jerusalem is going to be trampled under by the, by the Gentiles. Now, look at the history of Jerusalem, by the way, since that time. First the Romans, and then you have the Turks, and you have the Muslims, and then you have uh, even the Christians have come in and trampled over that city. If you go there today, by the way, that city is trampled over by Gentiles right now. It's just filled with non-Jewish people from all over the world who make pilgrimages there, either because they're Islamic or because they're Christian, because they want to see the place where all this stuff happened. But what will you see? Instead of a temple... You see a flat spot with a bunch of stones scattered in the ditches around it. And when I'm talking about stones, I'm not talking about those types of stones. Like there are stones bigger than this stage that they had to drag down. Like they wanted that gold. They wanted that stuff and they completely wiped it out. So what then will be the signs? Well, let's look here in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the rivers, and I'm sorry, the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud 
with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Well, he's now going to talk about what the actual signs are, and the signs are not simple everyday things. There's a complete disruption in, the, in, in space. It talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars being disrupted. The book of Revelation tells us a third of the stars go dark. The sun, I mean, the moon goes red. This is a complete disruption of anything normal whatsoever that we've ever seen. It's going to cause dismay, perplexity. It's going to cause fear on earth because there's this expectation that something's about to happen. It's as if it says here, the power of heaven is shaken. I mean, this is not heaven like we're going to heaven. This is like the heavenly bodies, all of outer space. It's like space itself doesn't make sense. Even the seas and the waves, they're, they're not flowing normal. There's a rage to them that's not been there before. Again, all the destruction that's described in the book of Revelation, those things are going to make it pretty clear. And then, at that point, you'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power. This is the end of the book of Revelation. They ask this question, when will the Son come again? That's when he comes. After all of this stuff, that's what it's talking about here. And you see that in the book of Revelation. Now, uh, you can read more about this in Daniel chapter 7, by the way. Um, another place that's interesting to read about this is just very brief, but in Acts chapter 1, we'll be there in about a month. But in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends up into heaven and the disciples are like, where's he going? Some angels appear and say, don't look up in dismay. In the same way that Jesus left, he will return again to understand. And so when you start to see these signs, you look up because your redemption is near. Now, here's this, this difficulty. Jesus is speaking to the disciples in that moment, but he's also speaking to disciples, us, for the last 2,000 years. And he's also talking to those end-time saints, or I call them tribulation saints, those who will come to Christ after the rapture of the church during all this disruption on earth. So he's got to tailor this in such a way that it hits all of those pieces. And so as for the disciples, he, he's just telling them how to live. And you'll see that at the end of this chapter for those disciples at that time, and even for us, how we're supposed to live until the signs. But I believe in the end times, at that time of tribulation, those who come to Christ after the rapture of the church and they start seeing all this crazy stuff going, they need to know that these things were picked by God, predicted by God, prophesied by God, put in place by God. He's speaking even to them. That's the power of the word. Of course, not a word of it's going to fall away. We know that as well in verse 33. So now he's going to give us just some simple ideas of how to think through these things, how to live through these things, I guess, uh, and until such a time as the end comes. Verse 29, then he told them a parable, behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, that that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. 
but keep on the alert at all times, praying that you have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the temple mount, and the people uh, would get up early in the morning and come to him in the temple to listen to him. I'm sorry, not the temple mount, on the mount of all of it. So here's his instructions now. What do we do until the end? Number one, he gives a parable. Just like a, a tree starts to get leaves and you see those leaves and you think, aha, summer's coming close. It doesn't always work in Wyoming. But in other places, when you see those leaves, summer is close. It's near, right? In the same way, when you see these things, he says, you know the end is near. Well, what are these things? It's those signs he talked about, the signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, the dismay on earth, the fear on earth, the seas raging, heaven itself shaken, the heavenly places shaken. When those things happen, you know that the time is near, and so you kind of have to be paying attention to those things. He does want us to pay attention. He wants us to be on guard. He wants us to be alert. He just doesn't want us to be misled by every person who comes along and says, now's the time, now's the time, now's the time. And look, his disciples, they're never going to see these things. And for the last 2,000 years, disciples have never seen these things. The greatest men of God never saw these things come to fruition. It didn't happen. But someday it will. And he doesn't want us to get distracted by the length of time that it hasn't happened, that we give up. So he tells them they need to pay attention to these things. He also says something interesting. This generation will not pass away until all things take place. This is where some of the confusion comes from. Some people would read that and say, see, he's talking about that generation of disciples that he's talking to, that that generation won't pass away until all this takes place. 70 AD, temple comes down, so all the other stuff must have happened at that time as well. No, the generation he's talking about is the generation that sees the signs. When you see the signs, the end is near. And for that generation, they won't get to another generation. Once this starts, it's going to be fairly quick when it all comes to fruition, once it all gets started. So what we have to do, we have to pay attention. He tells us in verse 34, we need to be on guard, but he actually describes what that means for us. He doesn't want our hearts to be weighted down with dissipation, drunkenness, and worries. Now, I would actually put that in reverse order, because from what I know of people that worries lead to drunkenness, and drunkenness leads to dissipation, right? That's kind of the order this works. Sometimes we get so worried about the stuff going on, we try to self-medicate ourselves in, in a hundred different ways. Drunkenness, certainly, drugs, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? All those things. TV, food, any form of entertainment, social media, anything we can do to distract ourselves from the difficulty of the world around us. Jesus says, don't let those things distract you from waiting for him to where you stop paying attention to his purposes for your life. Uh, maybe the word dissipation might be a little confusing there. Again, worries, then drunkenness, then dissipation. Uh, so there's actually two words in the New Testament for dissipation. All the other times, it just means wastefulness. There's one word here. It's the only time it's used in the Bible. This word for dissipation here 
means the headache that comes after drunkenness. It's a hangover. You don't want to be so hungover by the pursuit of the pleasures of this world that you're pursuing because you can't deal with the worries of this world that you're just not paying attention to the things of God. That's how we are on guard. We don't let everything else weigh us down to the point where we go for distraction in every way possible. And I'm standing up here as one who struggles with this. I have very specific responses to worries and stress. They're the same every single time. It starts with a Big Mac, it, start, it ends with a binge on Netflix or something. <laughs> like just feed me, burp me, put me to bed. That's what you gotta do. Like, anything I can do to shut my brain off. That's what I do. I just, I'm just trying to shut my brain off. I've just chosen more socially acceptable ways to do it. But it's still sinful if it's distracting me from my purpose, my calling in the kingdom and waiting for the kingdom of God. There's real concern. There's real danger there for us. Uh, the second thing he says, he wants us to keep alert, but he tells us how to keep alert. He says, keep alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He wants us to pray just like he taught us to pray in Matthew 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. He wants us to pray with his coming kingdom in mind. And specifically, he wants us to pray that we'll be able to escape the things of the end and that we'll be able to stand in the presence of the Son of God in heaven. Those are the things that we should be praying for. Now look, I don't know that we as Christians pray for the end enough. I don't know if we pray for the day that we're going to stand before Jesus Christ enough. I think we're so busy praying about our sick cat and our finances and our grandma and our health issues and our relationship issues and war in the world, all of this stuff. We're so worried about all of these things and COVID and all of it. We just pray and pray and pray and pray about all these problems. Man, if you're a prayer list maker on your prayer list, I would add to that right now. The things I'm going to be praying for is that I will escape the things of the end and that I'll be able to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. Pray for those things. For his kingdom come, pray for those things. Those are the things we need to be praying about. We sometimes worry way too much about the end of the world. Jesus gave us instructions on how to respond to that worry. Pay attention to the signs. Don't hide your worries with drunkenness and dissipation and pray. Those are the instructions to the disciples. And those instructions were for the original 12 and all the other disciples that came after them for the last 2,000 years and even for those who will come to Christ after the rapture of the church, the tribulation saints. Pay attention to the signs. Don't let the worries of this world weigh you down to the point where you shut your brain off and quit paying attention and pray. That's how we respond to these things. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to be paying attention 
And uh, at least I know for me personally that the end time stuff is confusing enough uh, that I sometimes don't like to think about it. I like to just think of it as something that's out there. I'll know it when I see it and I don't have to worry about it until then. Uh, But that wasn't the instructions you gave us. The instructions you gave us were very clear. Lord, help us to not let ourselves get so distracted that we just stop paying attention. Father, help us to escape the things of the end and help us, Lord, to be able to stand in the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe, I know, that abiding in your Son, Jesus Christ, now allows us to stand before him then. So, Lord, help us to abide, to keep alert, and to guard ourselves. Father, we thank you. We love you today. In Jesus' name, amen.